Dr. Perry, when you when you dive into the science, you quote a study and a survey that said that almost 50% of children in the United States have had at least one significant traumatic experience, but a lot of people will still deny ever having experienced trauma. A lot of people will feel uncomfortable admitting and accepting that they have experienced some trauma. What are some of our misconceptions around what trauma is and how it affects us? And would you mind explaining what sort of experiences are defined as traumatic to help us sure. expand our definition? <clears throat> so most of us first heard the concept of sort of trauma as, as we're talking about it now in context of post-traumatic stress disorder and combat veterans. And so even within our field in psychiatry, the majority of people who studied uh, trauma and looked at trauma were looking at the effects of these horrific events, exposure to combat, death of a soldier next to you, as you know, the, the thing to understand around trauma. But over time, people like me who were studying the stress response systems in animal models were very uh, well aware that it's not necessarily these big traumatic events that uh, are easily identified by everybody as a trauma that will lead to the changes in the brain that cause the problems. And so certainly if you do have these events, that can be a problem. So natural disaster, house fire, car accident, you know, abuse of all sorts, that's certainly traumatic. But probably the most important thing, and, and I think the thing that's impacting more children and adults than anything else, are experiences that are patterns of stress activation where you have no control over the experience. It's not predictable and it's prolonged, it's ongoing. And I think in, to some degree, the experiences of the last year uh, are uh, an example for many people of a prolonged set of uncontrollable and unpredictable stressors. And we've all felt sort of our baseline level of tolerance is going down. We're a little bit more tired. We can handle situations a little bit less. And so what we've been studying is the combination of these experiences where you are not in control of your life. Uh, and it may be a child who's living in a domestic violence environment where he or she is not the direct target of all of this stuff, but there's so much unpredictability about when the fighting is going to happen. And there's so much unpredictability about whether mom is going to be in a good mood today or a bad mood, or dad's going to be angry or not angry. And that can lead to these physiological changes that increase your risk for physical health problems, mental health problems, and learning problems. And so that's kind of where we're moving in the field is this recognition that you don't just have to have some sort of capital T trauma in your life to be impacted by trauma. And in fact, if you are a minority in a majority culture, you're going to get all kinds of experiences where you're getting these relational interactions that are, not, are sending the signal that you don't belong, which will activate your stress response, which can over time accumulate and influence your physical and mental health. We can believe things at our core, but are we acting at them on our core, right? Are we acting on them? Are we actually taking action? Are we actually becoming activated and making change or trying to make change? When we are believing, making things happen, actually attract 
resources. So focusing on resources at the get-go isn't necessarily what you need. What we need to do is focus on the authenticity of what we're trying to achieve. Finally, we always have doubt whether our opinion matters or not. And sometimes we think that our social status might hinder us from making change. How do we overcome this? Finally, great point. Let's take a look at the case for Malala. Social change is different from business. In business, our social status matters. In business, our achievements matter. In, in business, our grades matter, right? But social change is about authenticity and genuineness and the true belief in a cause. If you look at anyone having massive change today in those spaces, they may be coming from business and making change. That's awesome, right? They've already established themselves in another industry and now they're bringing that to something that they care about. But if you look at grassroots level change in any area, it's coming from people who don't have degrees in that area, who don't have a background in that area, who haven't made money in that area, but they care about it. And that's why an authentic program of change, not just speaking about stuff, not just writing about stuff, but actually creating small groups of change, small pockets of change, activating individuals to start making a difference. That's something that everyone can connect with. That's something that attracts attention. So when you're doubting your opinion or whether your opinion matters, recognize you're probably right. Most of our opinions don't matter. Everyone has an opinion. If I share something about Standing Rock today, so many people around us will have an opinion. But the key is how many people are turning that opinion into action? So it's true, our opinion may not matter. But as soon as we start turning that opinion into genuine and authentic action, that will attract interest from the right people. When you were talking about the stories we tell ourselves, I think that's so important because there's a, there's a great study that I talk about in the book by Amy Brzezniewski from the Yale uh, University. And what they found is that they tried to find a career that they felt people may find not sharing a positive story around. And they found that hospital cleaners or hospital workers potentially have one of the toughest jobs. And Rung, and you're a doctor and you know I'm sure you've seen people having to do that work and it's a tough job. And so they asked hospital workers how they define their jobs. And the majority of them defined it as low skilled, defined it as, you know, insignificant, defined it as just a way to pay the bills and that their job wasn't useful or their job wasn't important. And their role was basically described like the personnel manual. But then they asked another set of hospital workers, the same people who did the same jobs, different people who did the same jobs, and they said, how do you feel about your job? And these people had completely different views. They felt they were healers. They felt they were caretakers. They felt that they were able to transform the energy of the actual hospital. They felt that they were carers for the people there. And what they found is that these same people, sorry, different people who did the same job were telling themselves a different story and therefore they saw their role as integral to the healing of the patient. And because they saw their role as integral to the healing of the patient, they found the work that they did to be extremely meaningful. And that's crazy to think about it, that different people doing the same job could say different things about the same work. They're doing the same exact thing daily, but someone thinks it's meaningless and the other thinks it's so meaningful. And this was a term by Yale that was called, the, was called job crafting. The ability to assign meaning where you see it 
and all of a sudden your life becomes meaningful. So if you're sitting in a job right now that you hate, or if you've got a boss that you really don't like, or if you're in a relationship that you don't want to be in, if you can't leave for whatever reason right now because of COVID or lockdown or whatever it is, financial difficulties, if you can't leave and you really want to, one of the things I recommend you do is called job crafting. You start asking yourself, where can I find meaning in this? What can I learn? What can I adopt? What is this trying to teach me? And that's actually where gratitude can be applied to every place because you start going, there is some value in this. I remember when I wanted to leave my corporate job and I wanted to live my passion and do what I do today. But I'm so grateful I was at my corporate job because I learned so much there that is so useful to me now. And we find it very easy to be grateful when things are going our way, but we find it very difficult to be grateful when things are not going our way. But what we have to learn to realize, which is a really hard lesson to realize, is that things are always going your way if you're moving in the right direction. Things are not going to always look like they're going your way and they could still be going your way. We've all seen curses turn into gifts and gifts turn into curses. But the problem is, wrong, and this is the challenge, we have a projector up here of what we want life to look like. And then we have the reality of what life actually looks like. So there's this big discrepancy. And so sometimes you're actually going in the right direction, but because it doesn't look like your picture and your image of what it should look like, you work less, you become lazier, you become complacent, you try less harder because you're like, this doesn't look like the right direction. But you'll get to where you want in life, just not in the way you imagined it, if you keep going, if you keep pushing, if you keep learning. And that's what it means to be grateful in all areas of your life is trying to, even in the toughest moment, even in a challenging situation, not gratitude like, oh, I'm so thankful to you for causing me the pain, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is saying to yourself, where is there meaning in this? Where is the lesson in this so I don't repeat this again? If I can be grateful in this challenging situation and I can experience gratitude at all times, then I'm always going to be coming at things from a positive space and positive energy. You know, are, are stimulated by the idea and and even I have had glimpses of that space. Oh, I'm sure you have. Yeah, glimpses of that space. But how can you live in that space? You seem to live in that space. Yes. Well, first of all, it's important to acknowledge and to be grateful for the glimpses of it yes. when they happen. And then you can actually not just wait for the space to happen almost as a kind of grace that comes into your life, right. which sometimes does happen. Right. But you can also invite that space simply by bringing more presence into your life, which means more present moment awareness. For example, I recommend that people use little everyday activities that they do every day unconsciously and mm -hmm. bring a conscious presence. When you wash your hands, when you make a cup of coffee, when you walk across a room, down the stairs, you're in the elevator, waiting for the elevator. These are all opportunities for, instead of indulging in thinking, being there as a still alert presence. Yes, like a lot of people, you know, take showers in the morning. They're taking a shower, but they might as well already be in the office because they're thinking about, you know, getting in their car and what am I going to do today? And That's right. what, you know, what yes. is my to-do list? Yes. Instead of being present in the shower, feeling the water, the essence of the water, the moment, 
whatever. That's right. So it's bringing little spaces into your everyday life, as many spaces as possible. I say, for example, when you get into your car, shut the door and be there for just half a minute. Feel your breathing, perhaps feel the energy inside your body. Look around, sky, the trees. It All it takes is half a minute. And the mind might tell you, I don't have time. Yes. <laughs> That's the mind talking to you. But I would suggest that even the busiest person has time for 30 seconds of space. Right. In When they sit in their car, for example, or many other occasions. Well, I will have to tell you that uh, I think, it yes, it was. The year 2000, I first read this book. And many, many, many times this book has saved me. I mean, the theories in The Power of Now have saved me. And today, as a matter of fact, I had, uh, you know, one of the most hectic days. But yes. I remember waking up this morning thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to be so stressed. I'm going to be so, so stressed. I let that go. I let those thoughts go and just thought I will just for every moment of the day be present now. Yes. It's a continuous refocusing on real what really matters, what matters most in anybody's life, which is always now, the present moment. People don't realize it, that that's really, that's all there ever is. There is no past or future except as memory or anticipation in your mind. But that's what throws me, though, in the book when you say there's no past. Of course, there has to be a past because... There are all of our memories. There are all these ways we defined ourselves. That's yes. our that's our past. Yes. On one level, you could say nobody can argue with the fact that there is such a thing as time. There is such a thing as future. Of course, we use time to meet here. We agreed on this particular time. We said right. we are going to meet on this day at that time. Otherwise, it would have been difficult. We might never have met. That's right. And you are hard to find <laughs> in all the different countries. I'm talking to Eckhart Tolle, author of Power of Now. But we agreed on this time, and we are here because this is now. That's right. So time, then, is something that we cannot do without. We could even say time is what dominates the entire this entire life that we experience here because this illusionary plane it, that we're on that's right right the, this i call it the surface level of reality Got is it. completely dominated by time which is the past and future in the continuous stream and people look to time very often for expecting that time will eventually fulfill them time will eventually give them what they need time will eventually give them happiness and sometimes, of course, it does for a while. But essentially, the true happiness you cannot find by looking to into the future because it is intrinsically one with living deeply in the present moment. So it has been said there are two ways of being unhappy. One is not getting what you want and the other is getting what you want. Right. <laughs> because if you think this, that or the other is going to make me happy even when you get it and you haven't realized that the present moment is all you ever have you will again be focusing on the next moment and always expecting because it's a mental pattern that has is very deep-seated always focusing always expecting something in the next moment never being fully in this moment well another thing that changed me when i read the power of now over seven years ago was your com comments about the fact that all of our stresses every stress that you have is based upon 
for the most part, thinking about what happened in the past or what should be happening in the future. That if you're able to take a deep breath, no matter what crisis is going on in your life, and look at what is happening now, hmm. in this moment, right now, That's I'm right. okay. That's right. Another way of putting it would be to say, many people identify them, their whole the whole sense of self with problems. Right. Problems. They're continuously involved in problems. And so for many people, their whole sense of identity is intimately bound up with the problems they have or think they have. And often, just as a reality test, I tell people, just a moment, I say, just say, what problem do you actually have at this moment? Just focus, see what the problem you have at this, not, not in an hour's time or tomorrow morning, but what problem do you have now? And sometimes people would suddenly wake up when they hear that question because they have to realize, at this moment, I don't actually have a problem. What you might have is a challenge. If something, a danger arises, a wild animal, animal jumps into this room, <laughs> that's mm -hmm. a challenge. And then, of course, it's not a problem because there's no time to make it into a problem. Problem to exist, you need time and you need mind activity, repetitive mind activity. In the present moment, there may be a challenge. That is true. There may even be pain. There may be an emotion but not what we call problem. So when people think, how do I get out of my problems? I suggest go into the present moment and see what is the problem now. And then you will always have to admit, well, right now I don't actually have a problem. And people got that even people are in prison. I've had letters from people in prison, some are in for life, They've written to me and said, I understood your message and I have become free. And they meant free inside. Wow. Free of problem making. Yes. Uh, yes, similar to uh, Viktor Frankl and, his, and Man's Search for Meaning. Yes. 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 Free of problem making. I want to ask you, you know, as I completed the book and have read and reread it many times over the years, portions of it, all of it, uh, listen to the tapes. I often wonder, do you live like this all the time? Are you always in the now? Yes, I'm basically in the now, surrendered to what happens. Occasionally, if I see, for example, somebody inflicting pain on somebody else or something, an emotion may come, anger may arise very briefly and then pass through. It doesn't link into the brain and it creates an enormous amount of useless thinking. So emotions can come and go, but I'm basically in that state of surrender to what is. Wow. Because what is, is always already the case. So you can't really argue internally with what is, because if you do, you suffer. <laughs> well, what about having, does it leave you passionless for life though? Because whatever is, is just going to be. No, no. Uh, in fact, you're more passionately alive when you are internally aligned with the present moment, mm. which means you, are, you let go of this inner resistance, which on a mental level is judgment and complaining, mm -hmm. and on an emotional level is some kind of negativity. So these two go together. Many people have an enormous amount of complaining going on continuously in their mind. <laughs> some people do it out aloud all the time. And usually the complaining is about what was, 
Yes. Or what they wish was. Or what should be, but isn't yes. happening, and this shouldn't be happening, and you shouldn't do this, and I would, don't want to be here. <laughs> and so they always find something to complain about. And so they, these are ways of denying the present moment. And that's a very dysfunctional state because you're basically denying life itself because outside of now there is no life. All right, then how do we plan for the future? We're all told that we should plan for the future. We shouldn't just be passive about the future. No, you should plan for the future and you don't need to lose yourself in the future. If you plan for the future, you can actually enjoy saying, okay, I, let's say I'm planning a trip or I'm planning a course of study and you write down what you have to do, various steps, and you enjoy that. The question is, are you losing yourself in the future or are you simply using time and future on a practical level where it's fine, it has its place on the practical level. But if you think that's some point that I'm going to reach in the future, now it might be the next vacation or it might be when I find the ideal partner or it might be when I get a better job or a better place to live or live in a more pleasant city or whatever it is, then I will finally be happy. And so, yes, a continuous projection mentally away from the now, that's where you lose yourself in the future. And that's the dysfunction. Using planning is actually fine. There's nothing dysfunctional about that. So, and that's the difference you could say between, as I call it, uh, clock time, which has its place in this world, right. and psychological time, which is the obsession, continuous obsession with past and future.